Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. First of all, it wasn't a mullet. It was all one lane. They say, is that really all you have? It was just beautifully feathered and styled. I just tell them if it ain't. I said it was beautifully feathered. Didn't take me that long to do. It was just naturally beautiful. My hair looked good, man. Beautiful blonde hair. Uh, it looked good, didn't it? Yeah. By the length of his a little, uh, what was that shit called that you used to put in your hair to make it, the highlights come out? Soul glow? Something like that. What would Vince say about that? Well, hey, Vince, tell me, mushrooms look good tonight. Yeah. So big. Yeah. That's good. Bullshit. Welcome to WrestleMania. Girl title now. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, I like that little sniffle right in the middle. Are you not feeling good today? What's going on, buddy? No, I'm feeling great. It was just, you know, an homage. Uh, an homage? No, an homage. What was an homage to? Uh, just the sniffles. To Brother Love in the 80s? No, Brother Love didn't do that shit, man. Shit. Oh, gosh. We're already starting with lies. Well, let's tell, some more, Tiger. let's tell some more lies. Uh, we are coming off of a pretty fun week. Uh, we had In Your House Beware a Dog last week, and then in between... We dropped global wrestling. What's the feedback been so far? Anything we want to go ahead and tie up loose ends for? No. And as far as the global, those are my recollections. Those are my stories of how I remember things. And, uh, that's it again. I I love it when people want to get technical. No, that's not it. And I'll tell you the full story. 
don't care about the full story. I'm talking about how things affected me and what it was with me at the time. You ain't got to get hot about it, bro. Oh, I'm about half hot. I can tell. All right, it's time. Bruce, what happened when WWE ran Judgment Day 2002? There is so much going on for this show. It's one of the more underrated topics. This was a nail-biter of a poll. It actually looked like it finished in a draw. Of course, Twitter will help us out and go ahead and tell us how many actual votes there were and not just go on percentages. Uh, but Shotgun Saturday Night and the Rockers, man, this was a nail-biter here. But Judgment Day 2002, I think, is one of the more critical pay-per-views that we could cover because there's so much other stuff going on. Uh, at, for example, this is the last pay-per-view before Steve Austin walks out. This is the last time we'll see Hulk Hogan as world champion. This is an American badass version of The Undertaker. Uh, this is the rookie year of Brock Lesnar. And before Goldberg has come over and people are making that comparison, the roster is probably as stacked as it will ever be. The quote-unquote curtain jerker on the card is Eddie Guerrero versus Rob Van Dam. Uh, you've also got Kurt Angle and a hair match. Uh, it, this thing goes on and on and on with all the stuff going around in the company, but it's also the first time that we've had a pay-per-view where the WWE has had to get the F out. They changed their name from the WWF to the WWE ran the big, get the F out campaign. Uh, and it happens just a couple of days after the British bulldog passes away. So there's just so much going on here. Uh, I don't know that we'll be able to go long form on each of those sidebars, <laughs> But I think there are at least half a dozen shows that we could do that somehow involve Judgment Day 2002. But when I first mentioned this pay-per-view to you, Bruce, does anything just jump to mind right away? Well, the first thing that came to mind right away was the head-shaving match with Kurt Angle and Edge. But as I watched it, I just smiled and laughed through the whole thing because, it, first of all, I thought it was a great show. And it was just a flood of memories coming back. So that was good. Uh, are you you blowing a horn? What was that? Uh, It was the morning train coming through. Are you okay? Wonderful. I think we know. I think we need to name that. Okay. So let's talk about it. Um, Lots of stuff to get into here. Uh, If you haven't already, I encourage you to go watch this pay-per-view. It's on the network right now. Uh, This took place in Nashville. I was actually there May 19th, 2002. Uh, And at the time, the Bridgestone Arena was called the Gaylord Entertainment Center. Uh, And this was a really, really, really big show. Um, I say that just because there's so much stuff going on. Uh, Let's kind of go ahead and get into... Uh, setting the stage a little bit. This is the first pay-per-view where the WWE has changed their name. Uh, the company had lost a court case. They no longer could use the letters WWF. And now they have decided to rebrand themselves as the WWE. And they actually run a series of promos, even inside this pay-per-view, uh, with little reminders uh, about this Get the F Out campaign, uh, where they make it kind of interesting. Um And they're having to spend quite a bit of money and quite a bit of time, I'm sure, rebranding the company because this is what it's been called the entire time you've been there and even before you got there, Bruce. So uh, briefly tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, 
how this came about, when you heard about it, when you guys knew about it, and what the plans were to rebrand something that had already been so well established. It was an American institution. And people still, even all this time later, 15 years later, they will still refer to it to me as WWF. Yeah, it was a huge pain in the ass. And it all stemmed from the WWF in the UK, the World Wildlife Fund, who also used the initials WWF with the little panda. And it kind of came about due to this thing they call the Internet. And we had registered World Wrestling Federation and the initials WWF here in the United States. And we also uh, registered them for the World Wide Web as well. The WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, had done the same thing, but they had done it in the United Kingdom. They fought for the letters, as did we. But it looked like the preliminary judgment from a court in the UK that I guess was the court that really governed over the internet ruled in the world wildlife fund favor. And it just looked like something that we weren't going, that we would win in certain places, but we would lose in others. And the decision was made rather than spend the money to fight that we might possibly lose let's let's make the change and spend that money to rebrand and Vince felt that renaming the brand or rebranding the company as an entertainment company was the way to go and that's how they came up with uh, world wrestling entertainment and trust me man there were a lot of people trying to get that wrestling out of the title too Oh, we got to talk. They didn't do that. I want to talk about this. I'm sure we'll make this into a full show sometime, but, um, who is the legal representation that was being used for this? Is this the same crew that we're also familiar with? No, this was, this was a lot of in-house people. This, this wasn't the, the usual McDivitt group as best. I remember now Jerry may have been involved at some point. But because it was international, we were using uh, legal folks in the United Kingdom. We were having, you know, it was a whole team of people. But I believe it was headed by the CEO and the folks in-house for the, mo- for the most part. Now, again, McDivitt was probably involved and Laura Brevetti. They were probably involved at some point, given their advice. But I don't think they headed it up. It was reported at the time that Justice Robin Jacob, when hearing the case, said the WWF's legal team, and these are actual references, uh, that their arguments were, quote-unquote, hopeless and astonishingly poor. Uh, And I've always read that and thought, that's not McDivitt. Like, (laughs) there's just no way that, and I don't know him, but just based on what we've heard, you know, for all these years and all the different uh, times somebody has ran opposed to the WWE or WWF, uh, it usually doesn't go their way. And this might be one of the only times uh, that they lost a case like this and seemingly a really, really big one. At the time, this to me seemed like one of the biggest stories in the history of wrestling, but you just kind of made it as if you didn't feel if it was that big of a deal. It was a big deal. Sure, it was a it was a very big deal, but it was also something that they looked at and saw an opportunity in to rebrand the company. 
So who would have been pushing for rebranding the company? Is is Vince? Uh, does Vince have someone in his ear saying to change the name, or is Vince himself all about changing the name? Vince himself was all about changing the name, but also the the marketing people and the merchandising and licensing people were all for it, as well as uh, folks in television production were all for it. It it just broadened the company to be able to include the movies. Again, to me, it was it was just semantics. To me, you could have the World Wrestling Federation movies as easy as you can World Wrestling Entertainment movies, but they wanted that word entertainment in there to be that descriptor of what the company was. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, this is the end of the world. They looked at it as, oh, my God, this is a new beginning. It just seeing the glass half full because it was it was one of those fights where you get into and it's like, God, man, I'm not sure that I'm going to get out of this one. Uh, Linda McMahon would have a quote in the WWF's press release, WWE's press release. As World Wrestling Entertainment, we have entertained millions of fans around the United States and around the globe. Our new name puts the emphasis on the E for entertainment, what our company does best. WWE provides us with a global identity that is distinct and unencumbered, which is critical to our U.S. and international growth plans. Um, So they're trying to spin this into a positive, and allegedly, you guys had already known that this was coming because before this ever happens... Uh, you guys make the calculated move to go ahead and change the restaurant name from WWF New York to the world. Uh, and at some point it's speculated that you guys knew that at least five years ahead of time, this was going to be a fight. So going back to what 97, 98, is that when you would have first heard about this legal opposition or did it go back further than that? And that's just when it got serious and went to court. No, both companies existed simultaneous for a while and you know we didn't change the the world for that reason the world was changed strictly so that people wouldn't view that as a wwf theme restaurant they wanted the world no 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 oh my god shit i'm telling you damn it it was to basically rebrand the club and they wanted the club to be the world because there was a club underneath there that they did at night and they didn't want people to think that they were going to a WWF themed restaurant and they renamed it the world so that they could plug that club and not think it's the restaurant because there was a club and there was a restaurant. So when they rebranded it, the world, that was the idea behind that. God forbid that they have anything to do with wrestling in the fucking name. So ridiculous. Uh, so they dropped the second W, which will be one of the questions somebody asked, I'm sure in 1979. So they go from the worldwide wrestling federation from 79 up until Oh two. And now we're no longer the world wrestling federation. Now we're world wrestling entertainment. Uh, it was reported at the time that rebranding and the cost of this and changing all of the. Um, branding positions that the company had out there would be in the neighborhood of $50 million. Do you say that sounds in the ballpark? Is that realistic or reasonable? Yeah, I I really don't know, but I imagine it was pretty damn expensive because we had to change everything. I wouldn't be surprised if it was more than that, just due to the editing that we had to go back and do on all of the programming 
taking that scratch logo with the WWF out of the programming and having to blur it and having to take it out whenever someone said WWF and having to silence it. It was a pain in the ass. So do you know specifically, uh, and I'm sure someone on Twitter is going to correct you with whatever you're about to say, but to the best of your recollection, do you know specifically what years have to have the logos blurred? Because it seems like, as I flip through some of the network, some of it feels without rhyme or reason. Um, every now and again, you'll see stuff that's produced where the logos are blurred and then seemingly around the same period, you'll see something and that doesn't happen. Is that because of a progression and the lawsuits when they were supposed to do stuff and they didn't do it and they decided to fight it. And then when they lost, they had to go back since it was under contest at that time and blur the stuff. Is that the, the rationale? The only thing that I remember, and I don't even know the reason why, was the Attitude Era Scratch logo. The Scratch logo that had the WWF in it was the only one that I remembered that they had to go back and take out. However, in subsequent years, they've left it in. Well, and and there's some stuff from the 80s. Like, I'll be watching a, a challenge or something, and they'll just blur it out. Or... You know, in an old promo, when a guy says WWF, they'll actually bleep it. And I know it's crazy, but, but you, you're not specific. You're not sure about the specifics of, no. you know, dates and times and all that. No, I'm not. Uh, the only, in the only one that I remember specifically that, that we had to, uh, on screen blur out was the scratch logo. I, I, we're going to move on here, but I would love to do some more research on this and break all of this down because I think this is one of the more fascinating stories. I mean, I know some people listening say, why is this a big deal? Well, imagine tomorrow if the NFL was something else. I mean, that seems kind of crazy to think about, but that's Welcome really. Welcome to the NFE. Okay, so since you did a little Vince impression there, I've got to ask, is there any irony in the fact that Vince owns everyone's name, and if they try to use a character that he owns, he sues them because it's his creation, but then he doesn't even own his own fucking name? No, they did own their own name. It was just in dispute, and they owned it in certain parts of the world, and the the whole the whole damn thing came down to that, that fucking, that damn internet thing. That Al Gore invented. If he hadn't fucked it all up, then we'd still have a WWF champion. Uh, do you Master. have any sort Jerry of... Jerry Jarrett's buddy. All right, I got you. I'm in the loop on this. Right. Um, when you had a conversation with Vince about getting the F out, what did that sound like? Goddamn, pal, this is good for us. Don't you understand? And we'll come up with a clever way to get everybody behind it. So get the fuck out of here, pal. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Uh, let's also mention briefly. Hey, hang, hang on, hang on. You're saying it wrong, Conrad. Which is something if you go back and you watch the show, you will notice. It's not get the F out. It's get the F out. Or get the F out. <laughs> it's always a there was a guy this is the, there was a guy god i wish i could remember his name 
But we ran through this list of producers and directors one time that Vince wanted to import from Hollywood because that's what we needed. We needed some Hollywood, some fresh ideas. And the guy came in. He was a producer, great producer, too, and a great guy. Cannot remember his fucking name, but he was one of the cool ones of this group that we brought in. And he said something that stuck with Vince forever. And I thought of it when I was listening to the promos for Get the F Out was, you can say anything, eyebrows up, and give it a different meaning. If you say it with eyebrows up, it, it, it takes the edge off of things. Give me an example. Well, you could say, get the F out. Or you could say, get the F out. See how I raised my eyebrows there? You almost did your Mexican voice right there. Well, you know, they say a lot of things, eyebrows up. How so eyebrows up just lightens the mood a little bit. How would a um the Spanish announce team remind their viewers at home about the name change? W W F No Get L F A Auto W W A Yeah, this is not a racist show at all. Let's talk Dude, about now, that's not racist, man. That's just taking care of our Hispanic friends and let them know that, man, we're on their side of just speaking a little Espanol there. Habla en Espanol. And, and who's your favorite Mexican friend? Oh, my good buddy, Dave Silva. The gentleman Rock who on. does all the graphics and makes us look good here on the show uh, at DG Silva 1975. Uh, we need to go ahead and uh, talk about the British Bulldog briefly. I want to cover him long form. Uh, at some point, but let's mention him here because he passed away on the 17th. So just two days prior to this. So of course the pay-per-view is on a Sunday, uh, bulldog leaves us on Friday. Uh, the only mention of Davy boy was a shot of a fan holding up a sign that says RIP Davy boy. I felt this was a little weird that they didn't acknowledge it during the pay-per-view is Vince trying to distance himself from the circumstances that maybe surrounded Davy boy's death here. I don't really recall because I thought that we did a, did we, and I don't know this, I should, but I thought we did a tribute on raw and maybe he felt that the the big tribute would be on raw and not to do it here, but I still think we should have done it here. I agree. That's the reason we're, we're covering it here. And I'm sure we'll talk about the British bulldog at some point in long form on the show. So stick around towards the end of the show. And we're going to give you topics as to how you can go ahead and vote on what you want to hear next week, but let's get right into it. Uh, the first, uh, thing we see on the actual pay-per-view is a video kind of hyping up judgment day. And this is during a time when the pay-per-views were really, really heavily themed and, um, they do different sets each week and or each month. And then there was eventually a departure made from that. Why did the company move away from doing these sort of brand specific theme specific sets that were so wildly different in the late nineties and early two thousands to now it's the exact same every time. Probably cost, but for me, I preferred when we did the theme stuff because it made every single one of them look different and you got to you just got into the theme for the event and it didn't feel like what you just said, like every other one so that your pay-per-view could look like raw. That looks like SmackDown. That looks like whatever the hell else they're doing at the time. So it, I, it was probably just cost and given everything a cleaner look 
However, I really felt that the themed pay-per-views and making everything around it a part of that theme worked best. Yeah, I liked when they all looked different. One of the things I thought that was interesting about the imagery is, man, they're really focusing on the noose and someone is being hanged. And this doesn't feel like something that the company would ever do now. Uh, But they were very comfortable with the imagery of the American badass, the undertaker, and this noose. Um, Do you remember there being any sort of concern as to whether or not this would be a good idea? This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from PaintYourLife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Yeah, there was. And, and as you notice, there wasn't anybody hanging anywhere in any of the imagery. No, However, bo- boss man wasn't there. He wasn't there in this in 2002, damn it. That never happened. That didn't exist. That was way back when. 
but the nooses were strategically placed. And it was so damn funny. I was like, okay, well, there's nobody hanging. But they were strategically placed so that whenever you put an image in front of them, it looked like that image was hanging. And I'm like, okay, we don't want to do nooses. We don't want to do people hanging from nooses. But we have nooses and we position people so that it looks like they're hanging from a noose. Roll tight. Oh, what a Vincism right there. Um, Roll tight, pal. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that one. Uh, let's get into the pay-per-view. Man, what a match this is on paper. Uh, it was actually a good match, too. But uh, when you really think about just the way this card stacks up, it's outstanding. There's one dark match that night. William Regal takes on and defeats D'Lo Brown. Uh, this is for the European title. They go about six and a half minutes. We have uh, not spent a lot of time here on the show talking about William Regal or D'Lo Brown. Do you have any fun Regal or D'Lo stories you could share with us quickly? William Regal, just one of the best damn all-around workers that I've uh, ever had the pleasure to work with. A great guy. Had had a shitload of issues uh, early on in his tenure at the WWE, but he's a success story of the drug program and the wellness program in WWE. He's at least, look, I'm going to point at him. I'm going to take some of the credit. He's one of my success stories that I am proud to say that I kind of helped him through his addiction and different things. And he's living a much better life now and doing great. D'Lo Brown underrated and in another one, a great guy. You got any fun, uh, D'Lo stories. I feel like D'Lo would be fun to travel with. Did you ever spend any time on the road with D'Lo? A little bit. You know, the, the majority of the time that I spent on the road with D'Lo was in uh, TNA, believe it or not. And we just like to be able to get to the uh, Fogo de Chao for lunch. So you'd get the cheap lunch <laughs> buffet. But nah, D'Lo's a great guy. He Last I heard, I saw him at WrestleCon. And if you're ever out in Vegas, you can go by and see him and the Godfather at uh, Cheetah's. So roll tide to that. Man, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, I didn't know he was doing the shoe show these days. That's a fun life. You know uh, it. So uh, let's get to the match, though, that we saw on pay-per-view. Our very first match there is Eddie Guerrero, who is the Intercontinental Champion, and he's going to be defending his title against Rob Van Dam. And Van Dam had been with the company at this point for a little while, but he was starting to get a bigger push in 2002. Uh, before we talk about the match itself, who would have been a Van Dam advocate in the company? Paul Heyman, sir. I think everybody was a Van Dam advocate. I, the there were talent that sometimes cringed at having to work with Rob because Rob could be a little snug. But everything Rob gave out, Rob would take, and he was just a really laid back. Laid back guy, kind of like what you see on TV. That's what you got in real life with Rob Van Dam. But his work was definitely solid, man. He could be a little snug. And Paul Heyman pushed for Van Dam big time. And I think the audience pushed for him as well. Uh, you and I got to hang out with uh, a guy who's on the roster now at Wale Mania this year. And years ago, I remember uh, at a show him giving the advice to another guy who was working a match against uh, Van Damme at TV. And he, and he pulls him over to the side and he says, hey, here's a pro tip for you. Get your fucking hands up. 
That's true. I, I don't know why, but the the little peek behind the curtain of oh, you're wrestling Van Dam. Hey man, word to the wise, get your fucking hands up. I thought that was phenomenal uh, because as a fan at home, I always felt like, damn, he's really doing that. Well, yeah, he is. Uh, this is a fun match and maybe one of the more underrated matches on the card. As we talked about, what a stacked roster this is, man. When Regal and Delos your dark match and your first match on the card is Eddie Guerrero and Rob Van Dam. Uh, this is a battle of the frog splash versus the five star splash. That's what they're trying to uh, craft this to be. Meltzer would say it was better than their last match and he gave it three stars. I think it could have been rated higher. Uh, there's a lot of fun little in- innovative spots in here. It runs about 10 minutes. Uh, what did you think of the match when you watched it back this week, Bruce? What were your takeaways? Oh, my God. I loved it. I, I truly loved it. I stopped. You know, sometimes when I watch these things, I'll do other other things. I stopped and watched this match. It was I forgot just how great Eddie Guerrero was, and I forgot how damn good Rob could be. Rob sometimes will wrestle to his opponent's strengths. And in this case, I felt Eddie really brought Rob up, and they had a great match. Both had the same damn haircut, uh, shaved on the sides and long on top. But who would have thought that a few years from this point that we would see Eddie Guerrero as the WWE champion? and be headlining, you know, pay-per-views and and doing everything that Eddie was doing. It it was absolutely just incredible to watch this match and and see these two guys go after it. Uh, The finish comes when uh, they're doing some really, really good mat wrestling and uh, Eddie Guerrero uh, starts doing his lying and cheating and stealing gimmick uh, and then goes ahead and gets a victory with a backslide, putting his feet on the ropes. This comes right after Van Damme couldn't make the backslide work, but he didn't have the leverage of the ropes. Um, so we kind of started talking about this match referencing who would have been a fan of Van Dam, um, behind the scenes, who would have been anti Van Dam and why was it triple H? I don't know that triple H was anti Van Dam. I think there was a certain, like I said, a certain amount of guys that would cringe getting in the ring with Rob. Just because he he would be snug, but I don't know that there was anybody necessarily against him. I what would happen sometimes is if you had one person, for example, Paul Heyman, really pushing for you really hard, that could work against you. Because there were if other that people who out of favor, then yeah. then that worked against you. And when you say worked against you, do you mean with the boys or with Vince? For it. Man, those, uh, all, that, the, all that, the above. Okay. I guess my question specifically was, did Triple H just automatically oppose anything that Heyman said and thought Heyman was a, was a fucking idiot and just discounted anything he thought? Or would Vince no, not say, at all. oh, that sounds like a Heyman idea? No, not at all. And the, it wouldn't be sounding like a Heyman idea. You'd be hearing it from Heyman. So sometimes how Paul would present things would turn Vince off. And if he was not feeling Paul that day, then anything Paul pitched. Okay. I got it. So when the word gets out that, uh, Vince doesn't necessarily have a high opinion of Heyman's ideas, then some of the kiss ass crew 
decides to fall in line and if Vince hates it, then I've got to hate it too, because that's, what's better for me to agree with Vince. I'm sure a lot of people felt that way. Uh, did they're going to look for the boss's lead and go that way. And a lot of times it's, it's simply in the presentation. And for example, if I was on the outs at that point, anything I brought up was shit. Well, it still is. Uh, you, you used to have, um, a relationship with a lot of the guys backstage, but in recent years, it's come out that Van Dam maybe wasn't the biggest Bruce Pritchard fan. Do you remember being cross with him about anything in particular? No. And I don't know that Van Dam is either a Bruce Pritchard fan or not a Bruce Pritchard fan. I know what you're talking about. The, the pick a hand story that Rob told. And I remember that very well because uh, tell everybody you're, you're speaking inside baseball. Tell everybody what pick a hand is and briefly share that story with us. No, there's a famous story that Rob, uh, told a backstage worker in ECW one time, pick a hand. And the guy was like, what? Taz, said, pick a hand. Why, right why, won't you, why won't you just, it's Taz, Taz and Van Dam had an issue. Hang on. No, see that that's no, the original story was a guy that worked backstage, a stagehand guy that worked backstage or a ring crew guy. Uh, cause Van Dam told me the story. I asked him the story point okay. blank. And it was a ring crew guy that Van Dam uh, did this to originally. And that's where the original story came from. I don't know if it actually happened to Taz. I think it did. But uh, Van Dam told him to pick a, pick a hand. And the guy was like, you know, what do you mean? He said, just right or left. Uh, there were rumors that were going around, apparently, that Rob Rob's not that kind of guy. Rob's real straightforward, easy, mellow guy. And if you pick left hand, then you got slapped with the left hand. You pick right, you got slapped with the right. That was what pick a hand was. And you're referring to a one of those shoot interviews where they were running down names on the pick a hand deal. And re- Rob threw me into that. Uh, there was a period where we were looking to get more out of Rob personality-wise and emotion-wise. And I came to Rob and I said, you know, what pisses you off? And he wouldn't tell me. I said, well, I'm trying to figure out, man, how, how I can, you know, get more emotion out of you. And I'm trying to, to dig in, trying to get to know you better so that we can, we can do more here so that we, we can get a little bit more range of emotion. And Rob just flat out refused because his feeling was that, if I knew what pissed him off and I knew what made him tick emotionally, then I would have power over him. And he didn't like giving anybody that power on the outside. You know, Rob was Zen, and Rob was, was fine with that. But he, I, man, I persisted and you know, I can be persistent sometimes. Oh yeah. So I just persisted, persisted, persisted to where he wanted to kill me. Well, well, I saw me and Rob were cool. I think he's cool with me. Good. Last time I saw him, he was cool. Uh, well, somebody that you didn't ever have uh, a lot of those uncomfortable situations with, and we've talked about briefly on the show before, is Eddie Guerrero. If you'd like to hear more about Eddie Guerrero, please check out the Radicals episode, which is available in our archives. It's probably the episode that helped first put us on the map. We'd greatly appreciate your feedback on that. So go check out uh, the Radicals episode to hear all about the time he and a few other fellows uh, made national wrestling news when they jumped from WCW to the WWF and then kind of what happened with their careers briefly 
uh, as they finished up. Uh, but you've probably got a fun Eddie Guerrero story you could share with us right now. Hit us with one. Well, you know what, Conrad? Actually, see, you said I didn't. I, I had plenty of those moments with Eddie Guerrero where he wanted to kill me. And as a matter of fact, one of them was on Mother's Day. Fast forward a few years. We were in El Paso, Texas, which is Eddie's hometown, and where his mother lived, where he grew up, where his family was from. And we did a presentation in the ring, and the whole idea behind it was Eddie was getting ready to wrestle uh, JBL, and Eddie was going to give his mother flowers for Mother's Day in the ring. So they get in the ring, and, and as Eddie uh, gives his mom flowers, JBL goes to grab the flowers and, and grab his mom, and Eddie's mom was going to feign as if she was having chest pains. Well, lo and behold, um, as she was feigning to go ahead and have chest pains, she was so worked up with this whole damn thing. Um, throughout the day, we went over it and over it and over it and over it and over it. She actually had a damn heart attack, a minor heart attack, but she actually had a damn heart attack. And we had the medics there. We had her own personal doctor there. We had Chavo. We had Chavito. Everybody's there. And in the middle of this damn thing, man, the doctor's like, we have to get her out of here. I think she's really having a heart attack. And Eddie wanted to come across the gurney at me because somehow now this was all my fault. Now, I might have suggested it to begin with, and I might have produced it, might have <laughs> laid everything out and said, hey, wouldn't it be great to do it in El Paso and all this shit? But, um, yeah, Eddie, Eddie wanted to kill me, man. And the Next up, we've got one of those really weird Vince McMahon segments on the show. This does not age well. Uh, do you know where I'm going next here, Bruce? I'll just go. Brother Devon. Uh, not the Dudley version, but the minister version, uh, is standing next to Dave Batista, who is at this point, Deacon Batista, who is, uh, carrying a collection plate that is chained around his neck. Sleeves are cut off of his suit. Um, the very, very roll tide Stacy Keebler is there. And of course, Vince McMahon is there. And, uh, Stacy is about to take on Trish Stratus. And Devon wants to go ahead and say a prayer. Uh, everyone bows their head and closes their eyes. Vince does this only briefly. And in the middle of the prayer, can't help himself and leans over and checks out Stacy's ass mid prayer. Um, <laughs> wouldn't you, then he hurries the finish along the prayers taking too long for Vince and he hurries him along this. I know that this is the Mr. McMahon character. But based on everything you've told us about Vince McMahon, this feels like Vince McMahon. Sometimes producing is easy. So what do I need to do here, Ruse? Just be yourself, boss. You got it, pal. <laughs> you gonna give me something on this, or did it at the time? Did you think him hurrying along a prayer and start checking out a chick's ass in the middle of a prayer was appropriate? I thought it was very appropriate. Look, hang on. Now, see, here, I, this is going to sound horrible. But I, I'm one of those guys that when you go to 
since I don't really go to church, but but you go to a funeral, all right? Or you go to one, and they tell you bow your head and pray. I'm that guy that's got his head up, looking around at everybody and seeing the other, you know, three or four people that are doing the same thing. So those people exist, and you know who you are. So yeah, the, the suggestion was maybe how long are you going to bow your head here, and so it was. It worked. It was the Mr. McMahon character. He wouldn't bow his head for too long. He would let everybody think that he was doing it to appease, but the real, the real guy would come out and have to check out the assets. Um, it, so much of this is weird and, and kind of ages differently because <sighs> it's you know they they have a an evil minister character. I mean this this pastor character is not a babyface. He's a heel. And then you've got the owner of the company, uh, kind of hurrying along a, what a lot of people take very seriously, including a lot of our, the majority of Americans, uh, are Christian. And, um, you've got not only that, but now, now you've got the, the owner of the company checking out a woman's ass. None of that would play on TV in 2017 for the company. I think it, well, maybe not for the company. However, and not, not meaning to offend anyone. This is just simply real life. Dig down deep inside of your real self. When you are sitting there, you're listening to the minister sometimes and they can get a little long winded. And you know that, uh, your favorite football team is getting ready to kick off and in 20 minutes, don't you sometimes kind of wish you could hurry them along? Go, come on, man, get to the point. Hey, man, I do, and let's move on. A little bit. Well, Deep down. W- w- whether that is the case or not, it's interesting that the company is making such different choices then than they are now. I'm not trying to. I'm not <laughs> trying to dig into, you know, uh, anybody's religious beliefs. I'm just saying they would shy away so much now. But back then, man, they're just wallering all in it. You think? Yeah, a little bit. Different times. Uh, any sort of, um, does anybody kind of raise an eyebrow when Vince is doing this stuff with Stacy, where he's, uh, you know, checking her out and all that? None of that. I mean, because at this point, the company's publicly traded. None of that raises an eyebrow with anybody at the time. No, because it was a Mr. Man, McMahon character, and that's the character that he portrayed, and that was true to the character. It's uh, it's amazing how different uh, America is now and um, the product is uh, as a result of that. Next up, though. How, how different he is now. Sure. I mean, this is this is interesting. Uh, if, you, if you'd like to, I encourage you, if you haven't already, go check out that segment. It's, it's something else, man. Uh, next up, Stacey Keebler, Trish Stratus. Um, that's our match, but I guess what I want to talk about is Devon and Deacon. Uh, they come out early to watch the match, and eventually Bubba is involved here because they're they're finally breaking up the Dudley boys, so we're going to ag- progress the storyline. But let's talk a little bit about Dave Batista coming to the main roster. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Dave had been in OVW, Ohio Valley Wrestling. Um, Leviathan. I was trying to think of his name. I was. I wanted to come in with a big Leviathan. And that was a Jim Cornette creation of Leviathan with uh, Sin, who is Corny's significant other, lovely lady. And Dave had, you know, wore the, the contacts and was this big beast monster that came from the deep. So it had some overtones to it already. And Brother Deacon or, uh, or Brother Devon to have this evil deacon, this big bastard looking that guarded the money. Um, it got him on TV. That's all I can say for it. It wasn't, wasn't a great introduction. I think if hindsight were 2020 and we had it all to do over again, certainly would not have debuted Dave Batista as the deacon, but it was a way to get him on the air and it was a way to, to get his ass out there and let's find out what he, what he can do. He was very green at the time and his Deacon character is probably closer to the character that he plays on guardians of the galaxy than just Dave Batista. But it was a way to get Dave Batista on TV. Oh man. I can't wait to talk about Batista long form. We've had him on the poll before, but really talking about the evolution of this character and how it came about, man, I want to dig into that. Um, of course, this match kind of is what it is. Uh, Trish Stratus is, is largely giving credit for uh, being one of the real uh, innovators in women's wrestling because she kind of uh, was a notch above many of the others. And it seems like we always hear her and Trish are probably the ones who get a lot of the credit uh, for the women's revolution that we enjoy now. Uh, what was the, 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 the reality of their positioning on the card here? Uh, how the company saw women's wrestling, uh, her and her match with Stacey Keebler. What did you think of that? Give me something about this era of women's wrestling. Well, when Trish first started, Trish was God awful, horrible, absolutely terrible. But no, in fairness, Trish- uh, most people are God awful, horrible when they first start. I mean, that's not necessarily unique to Trish Stratus. No, but uh, by the time that they come to the show they are somewhat polished and they have had their skills underneath them trish did not when she first came to us and why is that and she just was she was a uh fitness model and the idea was to bring her in and use her as a manager at first but then she got rushed in pretty quickly into the ring and she wasn't quite ready but uh i gotta say man i'm gonna give a big salute to ron hutchison up in canada who helped train trish and really brought her up to speed quickly. And Ron had, had worked with Trish, but it's also a testament to Trish Stratus, who busts her ass. She was determined, as anybody I have ever met in my life, to be the best. Her from the first day that I met her till you know today, she probably wants to be the best at, at yoga and everything else she does. 
she just wanted to be the best and was willing to do whatever it takes to be the very best and put the work in. Um, so she's one of those success stories that w- if you were to judge her from day one when they told me she was ready to what she finally came, and especially at this point, um, it was a night and day difference. But the the girls at this point were still kind of viewed as eye candy, and let's have you know we'll have a divas match to to get it on the card, and let the guys look at the girls, and, and they were they were TNA at that point, and it wasn't it wasn't nearly what the division is today. They don't go very long here. Uh, Trish has Bubba, of course, as we said, and Stacy has Devon and Deacon, and they go just about three minutes or so uh, before the finish comes. Um, and I think the thing that stands out to the most to me in this match, especially watching it back is that Deacon Batista sneaks inside the ring, uh, when the ref is distracted and body slams the shit out of Trish Stratus, but then Stacy makes the cover and Trish kicks out. I don't know why this was amusing to me, but Batista body slam process that. And it is not, um, it is a hell of a body slam and Samantha. and she kicks out, um, Stacy then accidentally clotheslined uh, Deacon, which is hilarious. Uh, and this allowed Trish to hit Stacy with a bulldog, maybe not the best looking bulldog in the world, uh, for the pin. Um, it was described as being not good, but better than you think with Stacy in there, three quarters of a star. Uh, what are your, your three favorite Stacy Keebler matches, Bruce. <laughs> Does this one count? Yeah. Anything, anything involving lingerie with Stacy and, uh, Tori, I think would have to be my three favorite. Uh, well, I love Stacy. You know what, man? Who She's does another it? one that was just, you, you won't find a sweeter person. Who doesn't love Stacy Keebler? Shout out to, uh, David Flair roll title that. Um, was there ever any sort of question from any of the talent in the back or is it just Vince has got his mind made up? He wants these model type girls wrestling, uh, as opposed to just being in a Liz- miss Elizabeth, Sonny Sable, well, original Sable type role. They want a beautiful women competing. But they didn't want those women to compete like men. If, if they have an athletic contest, then it's like, why? I might as well just watch two guys. And that was shared by several people, I think, that, that felt that if the women actually had a competitive match, that no one would want to see it. I thought the opposite. I, I thought that if you have two beautiful women competing, man, I'm into that. Because I like to watch competition, and I like to watch beautiful women. Now, if you have women that look like guys, wrestling like guys and punching each other in the face, I don't, I don't like that as much. But I do enjoy uh, watching women compete, yeah. So next up on the show, we've got a uh, backstage segment. Uh, and this is where we see uh, Ric Flair hanging out with Arn Anderson and then an interaction with Vince where the storyline is these guys really don't like each other. Um, from your memory, uh, what was the uh, best part about working with Vince and Flair on these segments? I mean, these, these guys seem like they had natural chemistry, but 
they could pull off this stuff with anybody or everybody, but they've both got somebody to work against here, uh, character wise. And I always enjoyed their interactions here. The best part about working with them is they were easy. You could give them what you wanted and they understood it and you were going to get it out of them every single time. It was the, the facial expressions when Mr. McMahon hugged Flair and it was the, it was the happy, happy when he went in for the hug and when he got around, you saw the real emotion events just thoroughly disgusted at having to actually touch Ric Flair. Ugh. And then Flair, you know, the smiling once Vince left, kind of the, he the piece of shit. Yeah, so they're, they're both pretending to be friends here and hate each other. So it's, it's a fun time. Uh, next up though, something that, uh, many people probably didn't remember was on this card. We've got the Hardy boys, both Matt and Jeff taking on Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman. Um, that's right. (laughs) Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman are a tag team. And this is Brock Lesnar's rookie year. And even back in Oh two, he was being programmed as a monster with Paul Heyman as his advocate, but here they're actually a tag team. Of course, Heyman is on the ring apron in the corner, just as comfortable as he could be. Uh, now they were doing a fun deal here with, uh, Paul Heyman standing in the corner and Brock doing all the heavy lifting. And, uh, they're really doing a great job here of painting Brock as the unstoppable monster. The match doesn't even go five minutes and he lays waste to both of the Hardy boys and allows Heyman to give him the pin. Uh, does this not kind of kill the Hardy boys in the process? Who would have been such a big advocate for Brock? And is there any hesitation to essentially squashing the Hardys the way you have here? What other finish would you expect, my good sir? I am shocked the match went as long as it did. Me and Brock Lesnar against the Harvey boys? Police. Yeah, you know, I mean, it it was Brock's coming out party. Did the Hardys have an issue um, being destroyed two on one here? No, no. Well, it was, are you kidding me? It was really kind of like two and a half against two. You had Heyman over there. Brock's one and a half. Paul, Paul is an is a worthy adversary. Hey, I got to tell you, man, watching Paul run around the ring and slide into the ring, I couldn't do that today. Okay, so I probably never could do it. But, yeah, give him props. No, I'm not burying. He ran around a corner of the ring. I'm I'm a huge Paul Heyman fan. You know that. I'm not burying Paul. I'm just saying he didn't do anything to the very end of the match, and he comes in and gets the cover. He won the match. Yeah, And, and I'm curious. Was this something, and we've never really heard about this, but do you remember having a conversation where Paul actually wanted to be an in-ring performer? I mean, he did some, some silly stuff with Cornette and Missy Hyatt and stuff like that. But do you remember ever having a conversation with him about him wanting to be an, an in-ring performer? Look, all of us that are in the business, me included, we all wanted to be that in-ring performer. We all saw ourselves as the world heavyweight champion at some point in our career. So the desire is there. And if it isn't there, then you should get the hell out of the business. So yeah, Paul had a desire to be an in-ring performer without a doubt. Um, what'd you think of this match 
I mean, obviously, it did a great job as far as establishing Lesnar as a super monster. It was short and sweet to the point. It it was designed for one thing, and that was to get um, Brock Lesnar over. But as I said before, I, I chuckled watching Paul run around the ring and slide into the ring. I was like, all right, hey, good for you, Paul, man. Way to go. Um, but when they when they knocked Paul's hat off of his head, and Jerry Lawler's response, oh, my God, look at his head, look at his head, look at his head, because he had the skullet. Yeah, just you know, bald on top, and by this time he had that sweat going, so it's like probably a frothy skullet, and the stringy hair that was hanging down, and and Paul was not. A, hey, Paul, this is Bruce talking here. I mean, Paul's not an attractive man. Oh my gosh! And then you get him sweaty, and you knock his hat off of his head. It's kind of scary, but my favorite part is they had, I was watching, I had to pause it at some point in there, and I paused it at a part where Paul's head predominantly filled the screen. That's a vent shot. And, and you can see the the dye that is on his scalp, not on his hair because he doesn't have any hair there, but it's kind of like the old Jack Lands of Wahoo McDaniel spray-on black, black shit. And it just looked so ungodly, unbelievably bad of just the painted on blackness in Paul's head trying to give the illusion of hair. You know, he and listens then you to see the, the gray hairs coming out. You know, he listens and you're burying him right now. I'm not burying Paul. Paul, you have no fucking hair and the hair you have is gray. Let it go, buddy. I know Vince is saying, God damn, Paul. Dye that shit. But, like, just dye the hair, man, not the scalp. Hey, Paul looks a lot better now that he's kind of shaved the top of his head and, and looks his age. He's doing very well. I'm a big fan of Paul Heyman. My goodness. I did not expect that. What? Um, I, I just didn't. My kids give me shit every time I go get a haircut and they see the, that gray hair I have. Both of them. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk about the next segment. Let's move along here. Uh, well, I guess before we do, we should address the chance that we're going on. Uh, you couldn't really avoid this huge Goldberg chance here early. Of course, this is before Goldberg comes into the company. Uh, was there any sort of concern or consideration that hey, here's a big jacked up guy uh, in black trunks and black boots just laying waste to people? People are going to compare him to Goldberg. Uh, did you guys kind of have in your mind's eye, hey, if we're ever able to sign him, this would be a good match for us to put together? We all know what happened. But uh, at this point, did you think that you were going to get this criticism or feedback from the fans and that they would kind of compare the two? And did you have that in mind for a future match already? No. Uh, the The whole idea was Brock Lesnar was fresh and new. And the idea was to build him. There was no desire or thought at that time of doing anything with Goldberg. All right. Um, next up, we've got, uh, I don't know, another kind of weird exchange. We've got Booker T backstage in an NWO shirt. Uh, he's being interviewed. And then uh, he says that he is a pro 
And when he was chosen to be an NWO member, because he's joined the NWO recently, he accepted. Uh, but he's still kind of acting like a goof. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, a very attractive woman appears on screen, and he hits on her. She whispers something to him. He takes her Marriott key, and we assume that he is going to her hotel room. He is well past the point of giddy here. He is uh, pretty fired up about this. Do you remember shooting these type of segments? And in my head, Vince has to be there producing it. Do I have that right? I think Vince might have been with us producing this one, but then again, maybe not. I don't really recall, but th- this was a Brian Gewertz idea. So old BFG, th- this was one of his because he loved the, the gold dust Booker T dynamic and chemistry that those guys had. And he loved writing for it. And this was just an extension of that. So before we get to what you're referencing there, uh, who was the girl in the, uh, in the skit? He was just a model. Models are us. Models are us. Okay. I didn't expect that. Um, next up, we've got uh, a pretty fun match, even in hindsight here. It goes kind of long, about 15 and a half minutes, but we've got Stone Cold Steve Austin in a handicap match taking on Big Show and Ric Flair. And there were there's so many stars on this card. I mean, we've been running through here. This is just another example. This is the fifth match on the card. If you count, if you count the, uh, the dark match, which, you know, was on Sunday night heat. So it's not really a dark match. You know what I mean? Um, Steve Austin is here and this is something we'll probably spend a few minutes on, but he's programmed against flair and big show. Does Austin feel slighted a little bit being middle of the card? What's going on in his life? As a reminder, this is his last pay-per-view before he walks out not wanting to do the job for Brock Lesnar. What was Austin like to deal with here? Is he happy with his positioning on the card? And if he is the biggest star in the history of the business, why is he in the middle of the card like this? Well, it's just simply timing on everything. You know, Hogan's back. Steve, I think at this point was feeling maybe not as he was the most important thing in the, in the company at that point. And it's hard to argue. He was, well, yeah, but you also have a, a shitload of talent that you're trying to get over and new guys that you're trying to bring up. So you, you have to shuffle a little bit. I, I don't think that being in the ring with Ric Flair and the big show is, is a slight, especially with the outcome of the match, but it was probably a way to just, you know, PST, but he was involved in the top storyline on raw. And this was, this was the top storyline on raw really at that point. It, it feels a little bit like what he tried to get away from in WCW. And of course we all know that he was fired from WCW, but when he goes to ECW, uh, he would start to tell his story. And we've heard it years since where he would be promised to be moved up the card and promised different spots. And that never really came to fruition because guys like Hogan were still on top and they were not willing to give their spots up. And that's back in, you know, 94, 95. Well, here we are in 2002 after he has helped make Vince McMahon a billionaire 
and he's in the middle of the card working with Ric Flair and on top Hulk Hogan is champion in the main event. It feels a little bit like everything he tried to escape from WCW, at least from a fan perspective. Uh, I know he wins the handicap match here and the match is super fun for what it is. Uh, you get to see, uh, Ric Flair before, uh, you know, he, I mean, Rick, Rick and O2 was still one hell of a performer, at least in my perspective, maybe not the guy we all want to remember from 85, 86, 88, 89, uh, but still putting on really fun matches. And it's fun to see him work with stone cold because I think a lot of people just really gravitate towards Steve's, uh, character and persona and beer drinking, but man, he could sell. And this Austin flair exchanges a series of exchanges they have here. It's super fun to me. What'd you think of the match, Bruce? Uh, same thing. I was going to use fun as a descriptor as well, because it was a fun match to watch and it was fun to watch Rick and Steve interact, but also how they got the giant involved and kept the giant, a giant. So the psychology of the match for me worked. I think on paper, when you look at it and go, God damn, how does Steve Austin beat Ric Flair and the giant? It, it all worked, and they threw X-Pac in there at the very end of the deal. But it was it was just that. It was a fun match. But, again, going back to the point of Steve, at some point you, you have to bring other people in. you got to move people around on the roster a little bit. And maybe Steve didn't feel that it was time for him to move down or be moved around at all. And And that was during the time that he and Vince got into their disagreement for wanting to move Brock Lesnar up the ladder some and using Steve for that catapult. And Steve left for a little bit of time. But that shit happens with people. That happens with top talent all the time. Before we're out of here, X-Pac hits the ring as well. Uh, all three guys uh, catch a stunner. So Flair, X-Pac, and show. And then uh, Flair takes the pin. So Austin comes out victorious. And this, to me feels like the beginning of the end or the very end of the NWO, which is available in the archives. If you'd like to hear more about the NWO in the WWE, uh, but you can go ahead and check that out in the archives. Now for more details on Austin's interaction and feud with the NWO, it's kind of funny here that you know he's not only beating two guys, but essentially three, but I enjoyed the little stuff in this seeing Steve Austin put a figure four on Ric Flair. Yeah. That's fun. You know, seeing these guys chop each other, that's fun. It feels like it's, you know, the best of two eras here uh, going at it. So it's another reason to enjoy Judgment Day 2002. Uh, Next up, though, we have got Edge and Kurt Angle. And uh, this match had a lot of heat. This is probably the match that most people remember the most about this show, which is something considering what's already happened on the show and what's still to come. It's a hair versus hair match. It goes about 15 and a half minutes. And when I first mentioned this to you at the top of the show and said, Hey, what'd you think about the most, uh, for this show, what jumps to mind? And it's this match. I'm curious whose idea was a hair versus hair match. I think it eventually, or, or the initial thought was Kurt angle and Kurt was going bald. So Kurt just wanted to shave his head because he was already going bald. And I was like, no, <laughs> wait, stop. 
because I come from the school of hair matches used to mean something. Uh, mask, you know, an unmasking of someone used to mean something back in the day when it was R-A-S-S-L-I-N. That's wrestling. So I said, let's wait. And let's, let's try and get a hair match out of this thing. And the, the perfect opponent was Edge. And so that's how we kind of backed into it because Kurt being the professional that Kurt Angle is, you know, at least asked before he changed his appearance and just went and shaved his damn head. But he was going bald and, and was contemplating shaving his head. So I thought, well, shit, let's make some money out of it. So that's a, a, a Bruce Pritchard idea. Well, it was to turn this into a hair match, a hair deal, yes, and to get his head shaving in public, if you will. But it was originally Kurt, I, Kurt who who wanted to shave his head. I'm not mad at that. Uh, the match is a pretty fun match, and I was really impressed with the work they put forth here. And I guess I kind of forgot. It's been a while since I watched it. Uh, Edge comes out to a Rob Zombie theme. I had kind of forgotten that he did that. How did that whole Rob Zombie Edge theme music situation come to be? It, it was a simple licensing deal, but Rob Zombie was a fan. We did some different things with Rob. Um, I don't know. It was during this time. It might have been even before that that Rob had done a Undertaker's Haunted House and done some different things. But Rob was easy to work with and had written this, and it fit Edge. So it was strictly a licensing deal and give Rob some exposure. Well, he got some exposure here. Uh, this was a fun match. If you haven't watched it, uh, as we mentioned, uh, it's one of the more memorable matches here and, uh, there's some crazy bumps in here. Uh, what'd you think of the match? <laughs> Absolutely loved it. This is, uh, Kurt angle at his best, but also just shows what a great worker that edge was as well. Kurt could do any and everything and there was no wasted movement in anything that he did in the match just a simple spot of Kurt being tied up in the ropes and the way Kurt continually fought to get out of being tied up in the ropes and edge with the spears and it, it was just beautiful and there was one point there was a belly to belly over the top rope that Kurt gave to edge and edge flew over the top rope to the floor that were classic but the way that they told the story of humiliating the other by shaving their head and the way we built up to the story of cutting off a big chunk of edges hair on the way, which people, you know, people somebody that had long hair, that was a big deal. Yeah. And going into this, when you see one guy's got long hair and one guy's balding, everybody kind of assumes, oh, well, he's losing this. Well, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we knew. So the, but that, that's um, what I'm saying is the idea then to take a chunk out of Edge's hair makes you question, well, is that really what they're doing? Because if they were doing that, why would they do this? Right. Yeah. And in the one thing that I wanted to make very clear in the promotion, because we, they had done a few things prior to this where, you know, they had a Jeff Jarrett hair match where essentially they just gave him a haircut and it actually looked better once he got the haircut than when he had the long straggly hair and Kevin Nash did a deal where he wanted to lose a, a loser, lose hair match. The same thing. He just got a haircut 
and not shaven bald. And there's just that. And again, this is old school thinking. Nowadays, people actually shave their head because they like the way it looks. But old school thinking was you held on to every single strand of hair you had. And being bald wasn't a status symbol. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't a look that people strove for. And so we wanted to get across the point that they would be shaved completely bald. And uh, that was a big selling point, at least for me, on this match. And I thought the match itself was tremendous, the back and forth. And and then the way Edge won it with a simple cradle was just fabulous, in my opinion. Uh, did you just make up a word and call it strove? They strove for. It's not made up. <laughs> you strive for something. So you, the, 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 the plural, if you're going to strive to do something, then you strove for it. <laughs> hey, we're just conversating here. I guess it is a word. I just, uh, I guess it's the past tense of hey, the past you know tense what? You of know strive. What? Cash me outside. How about that? I don't know. I've just never heard you dust off strove before. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I got all kinds of them in here. All right. I ain't mad at it. I look, I ain't got all makeup. I threw my Google machine. It's a legit word. Uh, so I'm curious about the match itself. Is there any, um, the bump that stands out the most to me is the, what you referenced a minute ago, the angle belly to belly from the ring to the floor that edge took. I mean, yeah, that seems like an unnecessary bump, especially in hindsight. That's the type of shit that shortens somebody's career. Does it not? If you don't know what the hell you're doing, it could, but Kurt was very safe and edge knew what the hell he was doing. Well, it looks awesome as a fan. It does. I mean, you, you, God you, damn it. did. Uh, and the false finishes here, the crowd, it maybe isn't as into it at the start of the match, but man, once they get going, the crowd is super, super hot for this. Probably one of their best matches together. I really enjoyed it. It's worth checking out. Uh, of course, we know the result. Edge gets the win. Uh, let's talk about the segment after, uh, where then he uh, gets him all the way up to the stage, sets him down in the barber chair. Where did you guys get the barber chair? Who was the barber? Give me something about all that. Oh, the barber was actually just a shoot barber locally. He was nobody special. And... The, the barber chair was just probably something magic came up with along the line or might've, I don't even remember. It was probably something magic came up with for the set, that whole barber set up there. And the barber was a guy that if we really needed help doing the shearing, that he would actually be able to step in and help because it's not the easiest thing in the world to shave someone's head after they've been sweating like crazy. Um, it was reported at the time, believe it or not, they actually went back and forth on the finish before the show. And there was talk of shaving edge. The theory was that he'd get over better with short hair and I'm not making that up. Uh, do you recall there being any sort of serious hesitation about this? Or is this all make believe rumor and innuendo that I wanted to shave edges head? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Big time. Hell yeah. What big time? Oh, yeah, that, I wanted, I, that I wanted to shave Edge's head. Yes, definitely pitch that because, again, like you said earlier, oh, well, everybody knows Kurt's going to lose. Right. That I felt it would have helped Kurt. And we could have, you know, we could have gotten to the, again, this is the old school in me. I get two this way. You shave Edge's head 
and he's proud of it. You know, you let him come back and we did, you know, kind of, we just thought it would give him a different look, a fresh look. He could come back with hair and, and style it and do some different things. But then for the return, Kurt, like, you know, doing something crazy with his hair and bragging about his hair and then get Kurt's hair at a later date. So you get two of them out of it. But Edge wasn't really crazy about uh, shaving his head, and Vince wasn't really crazy about shaving his head. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Edge, because this is right before Edge, or not too long, before Edge becomes a serious main eventer and has a phenomenal run on top. But at the time, I'm curious, how where was the positioning, at least in your mind, or the company's mind at the time, as far as the star power of an edge and a Rob Van Dam. Would you have argued at the time that Van Dam was a bigger star and you guys were trying to push edge or vice versa? I would argue at the time that the future was an edge. And I think everybody felt that we felt that from the debut of edge, that edge was the guy that we wanted to go with. And he was somebody that we saw a lot in for a future of in a singles run. So all, all the way through in, in edges career, he was always looked, looked at as a guy to be one of the top, top talent. Well, uh, next up, we don't have a match. We've got more Booker T and this time we see him at the Marriott. And when we cut to the scene, he is under the covers uh, in a Marriott with all the lights on. And for some reason, a camera is there. Uh, the model that you guys hired from where, where was the model from Bruce models are us, a model from models are us, uh, comes and jumps in the bed with him and she asks him to turn the lights down. So he does, and he pitches something to her and she instead replies, with gold dust voice, all of a sudden, once it's dark, gold dust starts talking and he's in the bed with them. And he says that he wants Booker to leave the NWO and come back to gold dust. Booker gets annoyed by this, turns the lights on, jumps out of bed with his bare ass hanging out and asks what the hell's going on. And he leaves the room. So catch me up. When did you shoot that? Where did you shoot it? Who was the producer? I know you said, you know, it was Brian's idea, but I want to hear about the actual shooting of this. I think Brian actually shot it uh, at the Marriott, the very Marriott that you saw in the picture that Jim Ross was able to put. That's Marriott right down the street, folks. We'll be later on down at the bar for, you know, the old Ric Flair plug. Uh, but yeah, I think Brian shot it uh, earlier in the day. And just kind of knocked it out, but it was just strictly an entertainment piece. Neither guy was on the show and it was a storyline that was going on it in raw at the time and Booker and Goldust had great chemistry. So we wanted to keep that story going. It's revealed of course, uh, when Goldust pulls the cover down that he's actually wearing women's lingerie. Is there any sort of, um, hesitation from Booker T or Goldust? putting this scene together or are they both game for this? Oh God. Yeah, totally. They, they were on board completely. Gold dust would do anything. Next up, we have got, uh, 
an actual wrestling match. And this is a pretty big one, especially when you consider all of the, the talent that's on this roster. I know I've said that several times now, uh, but we've got triple H and Chris Jericho in what type of match, Bruce? Hell in a cell. Uh, briefly, let me ask you this. We haven't talked about this very much in the past, but it's been reported that Jim Cornette likes to take credit for hell in a cell and this concept. I think he maybe said something like that on a shoot interview once or something. Uh, from your recollection, does Jim Cornette deserve the credit for the concept hell in a cell? I don't know. He may, uh, you know, it was, it was during that time that he and Russo were riding with Vince. So he may hypothetically, what would it sound like if Jim Cornette was trying to pitch Vince McMahon on the hell in a cell concept? Well, goddamn Conrad, it's fucking simple. You get a giant goddamn cage, and you put a top on the motherfucker, but it doesn't just come down around the ring ropes. You put it down all the fucking way around the goddamn ringside area, so it comes to the floor, motherfucker. And then they can work on the outside and take bumps into the fucking cage, but they can't get out of it. And then that goddamn motherfucker Vince Russo fucked it all up by having them get out of the goddamn cage. The cage is used to keep motherfuckers in and keep other motherfuckers out. Not for the motherfuckers that are in to get out of the motherfucker, only to come back into the motherfucker after they got out of the son of a bitch and they did big fucking bumps out of it, onto it, then back into it. Motherfucker. You know what? I think that's kind of how it went. That's phenomenal. Uh, Next up, as we said, though, is uh, Hunter and Jericho. It's going down here in a Hell in a Cell match. And the match here is, uh, this is kind of ironic. Triple H is, is trying to battle Vince McMahon. And Chris Jericho has been dispensed to take care of Mr. McMahon's bidding and uh, eliminate triple H from competition here. Both guys, uh, look phenomenal here. Uh, this is one of the more underrated matches. I know nobody talks about this as far as great all time hell in a cell matches, because it's on such a loaded card and it isn't necessarily maybe the best use of the actual match as a blow off to a feud. Uh, but this is a fun match and both of these guys know what they're doing. Uh, Hunter <laughs> was reported in the newsletters at the time. Hunter was Hogan level 10 this evening. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, we haven't really talked about this much in the past wrestlers obsession with being tan. Uh, I know a lot of these guys do self tanner and sometimes that's more evident than others. Uh, but it really started to become something that you would notice when they made the switch to HD. Uh, but what was the fascination with tanning and wrestlers tan in a can, man, spray that shit on. Um, well, like for me, I like to tan just because of my good friend, Arthur Morowitz said to me one time, he says, you know, Bruce, fat looks better tan than it does white. So I try to get as much sun on, on the old bod as I possibly can. I know it's bad for you, but, uh, just because it looks better, tan looks better than white. But good God, yes, man, there was, the, uh, there was an obsession with how much of this shit, and they used to stand in line for the makeup artist to do the, the spray-on tan, and then they would take the sponges and, and touch up areas of their body. You know, it's, it's a bodybuilder thing to make their muscles look bigger and more ripply. 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the guys getting color. I found it interesting, and I know you hate when I talk about this, but they almost catch Hunter on camera doing it. I mean, uh, he takes a bump into the cage, the camera's on him, and then it doesn't really move. So he's like, well, I guess they're not shooting me anymore. It rolls over to his right to go kind of stick his head half under the apron to make sure they don't see it. But before he goes, you see him pull his wrist tape back. Is there any sort of Vince meltdown in the back that nobody in the truck is telling them to cut away or go to a different camera during this? Or do you remember there ever being a specific incident where Vince was really fired up that they didn't cut away and kind of revealed too much of how the magic is done here? Well, sure. All the time. It's sometimes the truck gets caught. They're not perfect. And they, they got caught here. So the, Director's probably looking at something else, trying to set up another shot, trying to see what shot he has on other cameras, and just gets caught. Shit happens sometimes. Imperfect world, by God. Uh, it was reported in the newsletters at the time that Jericho actually um, does the honors with his shoulder here. And I don't remember Jericho ever doing that. I, I, we've all famously seen the scars on Dusty Rhodes' arm, and we remember some of those bar bar matches where stuff like this would happen. But do you remember there being an edict for Jericho to cut his shoulder? No. no it's probably something they just came up with, wanting to sell the cage. Uh, Which one, I think is clever. I think it's great. I no, it makes it real, you know. for sure. Yeah. Um, I've always liked when Jim Ross would use this analogy, and he did here, and it makes me smile. Whenever he sees one wrestler rub another's into the steel cage, he references that, you know, they're trying to cut him up like coleslaw. And I always thought that's funny. Uh, you know, him being the barbecue guy, that's hilarious to me. There's also they're trying to catch more of him like coleslaw, like cheese. He's like a cheese grater. He's, he's that cage like a cheese grater with his forehead up against that solid steel cage. We have got to do more Jim Ross impressions on this show for you. It's been a while that's since you friend. dusted that one off, and that was fun. Uh, Tim white is the referee here and there's some pretty fun spots in here at different times. He's screaming at Jericho to stay in the ring in a fucking hell in a cell match. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> screaming at him while I'm watching this shit and I'm going, what the fuck do they need to get in the ring for Tim? It's a goddamn hell in a cell. Get the fuck over it. And there's no DQ. There's no count out. Who the fuck cares where they are? Motherfucker. Well, let's run through this. Um, around this time, it almost becomes a game of how are they going to get the cage door open? Because there, there was always some sort of uh, shenanigan that had to happen around the cage, some interference from someone coming in, or the guys somehow find their way to the top of the cage. And that would be no different here. Uh, the way they get the cage door open here is they do a hell of a ref bump, which allegedly, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Tim Y actually legit dislocates his shoulder in the process of the bump here and actually has to go to the hospital after the show. <laughs> trumpets Sorry. are out. And he does a, he actually gets color himself. Uh, tell me about the injury and how you guys made the approach to say, hey, Mr. Referee, uh, put this in your pocket. Well, he did. Yeah, he did uh, separate his shoulder. He, he got it pretty well screwed up right there and went to the hospital. 
I don't remember the color, but uh, I, I definitely remember the separated shoulder. Yeah, Timmy was messed up. It was a hard, ugly bump. This time, a bunch of referees come down and uh, open up the cage so they can save Tim. Uh, and that's when Hunter goes under the ring and he finds his sledgehammer. Uh, Jericho is on the receiving end of that. Of course, though, when Triple H makes the cover, there is no ref. Uh, so Jericho starts to run for his life. They brawl around ringside. Uh, Hunter gives him a DDT through the Spanish announce table. And then he finds a barbed wire two by four. Hypothetically speaking, why is a barbed wire two by four just chilling ringside in Nashville? You never know when you might need one. <laughs> and uh, if you ever are in need of something, then you check under the ring. Cause it's, most likely will be there. Well, you know where this is going. They make their way to the top of the cage. Um, and this is not safe, you know, especially in hindsight, knowing what we know about, uh, this structure. Uh, I can't imagine anybody being comfortable being on top of the cage, but at the time there was this feeling that they've got to find their way up there. And you guys kind of created this. Is that fair to say, Bruce? You know, it, it <laughs> Drove me nuts because, again, I came from that old school of a cage match, nobody in, nobody out. Right. And that was without putting a top on the motherfucker. Um, and you didn't, the idea was to settle it inside the cage, not to get out of the cage. Again, just sorry, folks. It's, it's Bruce's weekly fucking cage rant. Goddamn, back in my day, motherfucker. I damn son, the object is stay in the fucking cage. That's what cage match is for. But, um, yeah, not only do you get out of the hell in the cell, but to get away from somebody instead of running to the fucking back, climb to the top. Seems logical. I know what I'm going to do. There's an aisle way and a clear path to safety over here. I'm going up. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, eventually Jericho puts Hunter in the lion tamer on top of the cage and a referee climbs on top of the cage to check the submission. Of course, Hunter refuses to tap <laughs> Tim out. White wanted that motherfucker, those motherfuckers inside the ring. This referee says, well, I'll go on up on top of the cage <laughs> to see if he's ready to submit. Do you want to tap out? Do you want to tap out? Yeah. That's, that's the reason we, we need to get Timmy the fuck out of there by God. <laughs> Eventually Hunter gives Jericho a low blow and goes for the pedigree, but Jericho backdrops him out of it. Now process this. They're on top of the damn cage and they're taking backdrops. Uh, this will bring up some mankind flashbacks from 1998 for sure. The cage does not collapse. Thank goodness. And, uh, Hunter manages to get to his feet. He hits Jericho in the head with the barbed bar bat and then hits the pedigree for the pin on top of the cage. Uh, it was described as good, but far from a classic three and a quarter stars. According to the dirt sheets, what does Bruce Pritchard say? Fuck Meltzer. I thought the match was good. I, I, it was entertaining for what it is and what people expect out of a hell in a cell today. And back then it served its purpose and it was, it was good for, for that type of a match as far as, um, going on top of the cage. It's just something I wasn't crazy about because it became and has become ever since. How do we top what they did last time? 
And in this particular instance, the idea was, well, maybe we're not going to take a big bump, but what if we had the finish on top of the cage, which was unique and different. So that's what they did. But then you have the, the awkward process of getting everybody. You do a finish on top of the cage. Now you got to get everybody down off the top of the cage. And it's just awkward after, you know, pinning somebody. Now he's got to roll over. He's got to crawl to the edge of the cage and get down. So it's just, it was weird and awkward, but the match itself, they busted their ass and busted each other's asses. And I thought it was a good match. Uh, one quick correction. Uh, I'm not using the observer this week. I'm using figure four weekly and Brian Alvarez. So do you want to change your fuck Dave Meltzer? Fuck figure four. I don't know, Brian. So, <laughs> uh, after that, we get another skit. Same difference, isn't it? We get another skit with uh, Kurt Angle and Edge backstage. Uh, anything you want to uh, kind of put a bow on about all things Angle and Edge from this show? Well, no, they haven't. They, we still haven't shaved his head yet, so we're going to get back to that after the the tag match coming up. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun, man. It was just Kurt hiding from Edge, and it was the uh, God uh, Benny. I'm going to screw it up again. Benny Hill, Benny Hill in England, the, the chase scenes. And that was the idea behind edge chasing Kurt angle backstage to finally trap him and get that head shaved. That was the idea that we were going for with Kurt sitting in the makeup chair with the cap on and all that good shit. It was just a way to stretch that story out and people anticipating the head shaving. Before we move on to the next match, I feel like I should circle back to something we talked about a minute ago. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about him again uh, in great detail, but Tim White is a guy who was a big part of the company for a long, long time. Uh, He was Andre's agent and a part-time referee, and that's how he kind of got into the company and then spent a long time with you guys. Um, Do I have that right? He was was a referee and a a good friend of... um Oh my gosh. Why am I going blank now? Jim Troy. Jim Troy was a hockey goon in, in Maryland that, that Vince owned the Cape Cod Coliseum. Uh, he was a goon on the Cape Cod hockey team and helped Vince run that hockey team. And Tim and Jimmy Troy were friends and Tim was part of international referee and he was good friends with Andre. So he would ride with Andre and help Andre out around the world whenever Andre traveled as well later years. Well, I think a lot of people associate Tim White with a couple of things. One, uh, Andre, the giant, and then two his lunchtime suicide stuff that I'm sure we'll cover, uh, later when we talk about 2005 or 2006 pay-per-views, but he would reference in, in some of those skits, I believe this particular hell of a cell match. Do you remember? And I know this took him out out of action for a while, and ultimately, his shoulder would never be the same. Um, do you remember this injury in this match being a major moment in his career? I mean, it feels like it was never really the same after this match. It was for him. Yeah, it was a bad injury, and it took him off of the road and out of the ring for quite some time while he healed. But it also allowed him to spend time at the uh, Friendly Tap there in Massachusetts where we destroyed it several times and we, we paid for that bar about <laughs> four times over. 
And it was a difficult time for Timmy because he enjoyed being on the road and enjoyed refereeing and, and being a part of the crew. So there was some time. And when he came back, he re-aggravated that injury. And the decision was made, you know, not to put him in that position going forward. Hell, we can. You're right, boss. Maybe we shouldn't put him in that position. What position? Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I'm looking forward to talking more about Tim White. I feel like he's one of the more unsung heroes of the WWE. He did so much for so long. And uh, I didn't really realize until I started doing some research on this show. But this is kind of the catalyst that would lead to the end of his refereeing career. Uh, because this injury would kind of follow him around for a long time. Uh, let's take a time out uh, real fast and talk a little bit about um, the commercial again, where they're promoting getting the F out. Uh, early in the show, we saw a woman trimming some hedges and then torching it, and the Scratch logo comes out and the F is gone. Uh, and now here we're doing another one, and this time they're kind of insinuating that people are having sex in a car uh, and they're promoting get the F out. Do you remember that particular skit? Who shoots that? Whose idea is that? How is that pitched or presented? That was a... That was a television production production. So the, the producers over there are the ones who actually shot, shot all of those, put those together, had a whole marketing campaign of different ways to get the F out. And they did a whole, whole series of these. Some were a little bit racier than others. Some could be on raw and some, you know, could only be on pay-per-view. I'm not sure that this one, um, made it on to, cable tv or not it might have but it was you know get the f out <laughs> versus yeah uh next you saw up, my eyebrows up there right i did and those of you at home you felt it right you felt the eyebrows up get the f out we go to uh, wwe new york and here we see maven there's a blast from the past and tori wilson sharing uh, a big drink with a couple of straws and then drinking champagne and separate glasses tori apparently says something sexual and Maven does a spit take. Um, this is not Russo. He's not here. Is this also a Brian call or who's interested in booking these type of, uh, sexual innuendo skits? Probably Vince McMahon more than anybody, especially when they were, they take you right to where you would like to go, but then you don't get any of that. And we had to, we had the, the Sunday parties, whether it would be Sunday night heat or the pay-per-view parties at the world in New York. And so we always had to have talent there. So whoever got the short straw had to end up being in New York at the restaurant. And it was just a way to get the restaurant up a good plug in and get talent on the pay-per-view. Um, let's talk a little bit about the next match. We've got the tag team champions here. Uh, and this is, um, Billy and Chuck, which I can't wait for us to cover in long form at some point in the future. I'm sure we will. Uh, but they're going to be taking on Rikishi and a mystery opponent, uh, as they defend their tag team titles. And the plan here is Rico, uh, who we haven't ever spent much time talking about on the show. Uh, I'm interested to hear your takeaway on the placement of this match. Um, and a lot of people may not understand why between a hell and a cell match, like we just had, and now our main event with the undertaker Hulk Hogan for the world title, 
you put this match in between explain the wrestling psychology of why this match makes sense right here to bring it back down and to you, you get off of a, off of a hot match with the hell in a cell and people are all hyped up. Now you want to kind of just bring them down before you bring out the main event. And in some terms, it would be viewed as the popcorn match, allowing people to get up, go to the bathroom, reset, go get popcorn, get refreshments, and then get settled in for the last match of the evening. And that's what, what this was. It was simply a a spacer. So you don't go hot to hot. Sometimes you have to, but this was, what this match was here is a feel good match. Give people a let up. Yeah. So the concept here, if you're not really familiar with storylines at the time is that, uh, Chuck and Billy have, you know, become a little bit of a pair here with Rico. And so when Vince is tasked with choosing a mystery opponent for Rico for Rikishi, he makes it be Rico to essentially now it's three on one. So it's not enough for it to be two on one. He saddles him with a mystery partner who doesn't even, you know, appear to want to be Rikishi's tag team partner. He's with the other guys. Um, of course, you know, what comes here, Rico tries to kick Rikishi, but accidentally kicks Chuck instead. So Rikishi covers him for the pin. Uh, this match didn't go very long. It goes under four minutes. Uh, and it does make the tag belts look a little bit like a comedy prop because in a three on one match here, essentially, uh, one guy is now the tag team champ. So he is a reluctant tag team champion with Rico, um, I don't know why, but I found this interesting and fun. Do you have any good Rico stories you could share with us? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Rico was the original American gladiator champion. When American gladiator debuted in the eighties, they had at the end of the season, they took their top winners from each episode and they competed against the gladiators for the ultimate American gladiator championship. Rico Constantino was the first American gladiator champion. So after he had done all of his commitments with the American gladiators traveling around the world, representing them, um, he tried his hand at professional wrestling and he had sent in things from time to time, trying to get in with us, trying to get trained. He got in with a group in California at some point, but he had a great look, great body. And I met him, tremendous guy, really wanted to learn green as grass, and we sent him to OVW. So Jim Cornette saw him, loved him, he should be the WWF champion, he's the All-American boy, he can work, he's great, he's good looking, he's goddamn American Gladiator champion, motherfucker. <sighs> and that was a kiss of death. Mm. Because kind of like I talked about how Paul Heyman and would depend on who was pitching who at what time. Right, right. Corny's pitch of Rico kind of didn't help Rico a whole lot. Uh, and Vince didn't see that All-American. And Rico was older at this point. Rico was in his mid-30s at this point. He wasn't a spring chicken and had some injury issues and different things. But a great guy. He was a cop. In law, I think he still is a cop in Las Vegas. Um, he was forty-one right here, by the way. Yeah, okay, but no, but when we brought him into OVW, he was in his mid-thirties. So yeah, and, and now he's forty-one, getting the break. But it just wasn't 
Vince didn't see a whole lot in him and saw him more as a manager and, a, and as a mouthpiece. But uh, his real calling in life was as a peace officer and, and being a cop in Vegas. He's um, not had the best health run lately. Um, I think he's got some heart issues and maybe some concussion issues. And by everyone's testimony, he was a good guy. So hope he's doing well with whatever is going on with him today. Uh, let's talk about, well, so- I, I'm sorry. Yes. I, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the sidebar here for yes. For Rico's story. I'll tell you Rico's story. The day that we were doing the Billy and Chuck wedding, right? We, we were shooting it live. We were doing all that stuff live and Rico was legit flustered. He had a lot to remember that day. He had a shitload to do that day. And we were coming backstage, and the idea was that Rico would be on his cell phone flustered with the wedding planner and going nuts. And, and I tried pre-taping it, and he couldn't get it. He just wasn't flustered enough because he was actually flustered. He was trying to act. And this is the one and only guy I've, I've ever done this with. Well, maybe not, but I remember this one specifically. I, I said, Rico, we're going to do this live, but God damn it. Need to get this shit out of your head. And I need you to be flustered. And he was trying so hard. I told the guys to count me down. Let me know exactly where we are before we go live. And eight seconds before we were going live, Rico had the phone up to his ear. And I slapped the living fuck out of him. Right across the face and knocked the phone out of his hands. And his phone broke. He had like a flip StarTac phone. Yeah. And he was so flustered trying to pick up the phone, and I'm counting him down. Come on, Rico, we're going live now. Three, two. And he's picking the phone up, putting it together, and he was so flustered. It was the best backstage thing he ever did because he was shoot flustered. He was beside himself and didn't know what to do, and that was exactly the emotion I was looking for. And afterwards, I hugged him and I said, please don't kill me because he's a legit badass, too. <laughs> like, please don't kill me. It's the only way that I knew that you would nail this thing live. And if you didn't nail it live, you and I both were going to get our asses chewed out. And thank God he forgave me. But um, it was a good take. That was my Rico story. Um, thoughts and prayers with Rico. Hope he's doing well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about... Uh, Chuck and Billy here. I know we're going to talk about it in long form, uh, but whose idea would this have been? Uh, is this uh, a Brian idea? No, this was a Vince idea. It was either a Vince idea or a Paul Heyman idea, one of the two. But no, not Brian Gortz gets no credit for Chuck and Billy. But Paul, but uh, Vince loved it. Is that it? Nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, that's really it until we get into a long form. If we get into everything else, we'll be here forever, Conrad. Rikishi, let's uh, touch on him. We haven't talked about him quite a bit here on the show. Obviously, he's had uh, a few different runs. Uh, a lot of people remember him as the Sultan and his various other gimmicks. But Rikishi's the one that he really struck it big with uh, and now is a Hall of Famer. Uh, we've talked about uh, briefly you know, the Armageddon match, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point for in Birmingham. He falls on a flatbed truck. Uh, and takes the big bump off of Hell in a Cell. Where would you rank Rikishi as far as being a player for the company at the time? Because, man, he was over like Rover. God, yes, man. He he was a big player. And th- this is going to sound funny. 
when Yokozuna started for us way back in 92, whatever it was, 93, whatever in that time frame, the idea was for Yoko to wear the traditional sumo garb, no trunks, you know, just have his ass hanging out and everything. And Yoko was uncomfortable with that. So he, we put on the, the tights, the red tights or white tights that he wore. And then the, the sumo dress over that. Rikishi, I remember going to Memphis, Tennessee to pitch Junior on being this Rikishi character, bleaching his hair blonde and doing the sumo gimmick. And he looks at me and says, wow, you want me to bleach my hair? I said, I'm not at the best part yet. He says, yeah, go ahead. I said, you know, Yoko was huge. But here's the idea that we originally had for Yoko. I truly do believe that had Yoko gone the extra mile that nobody could have touched him. And, and, and again, it's a little, it's a little thing, but it's a big thing too. I said, we would like to do something similar with you, but Vince is only going to do it. If you wear the traditional type sumo garb and you expose your ass and he really believes that if you do this, that you will be a huge star. And I think that that was the difference with, with Kishi, that he was willing to go. But as the more popular he got, the more that he did it, the more he tried to cover up his ass. And that's what brought him to the dance, was that big ass. So if you go back and you look, and you, you look at his, his first gear that he came out you got a lot more of that rikishi ass and then later years he tried to broaden it get a little bit bigger whale tail as years went on but that ass got him over man i don't know why but bruce pritchard saying that ass got him over makes my day uh okay now we're going back to uh what we're all here for i guess kurt angle Jumps Edge, drags him over to the barber chair. He goes for the Olympic slam. Edge sneaks in, puts him in a sleeper hold. And uh, for the first time in recent wrestling history, uh, the man in the sleeper hold actually goes to sleep. Uh, and then Edge starts to shave his head quite vigorously, I might add. And he's using a straight razor in the process. Uh, kind of catch me up about this skit and the big payoff here. Um, it feels like everybody should make sure that edge never gets to shave their head after seeing how this comes together. And of course the big payoff is angle finally looking in the mirror and freaking out. So they delivered on the hair versus hair and it happens right before our main event. Uh, what do you think of the payoff here? I love the payoff, but a couple things, the sleeper that edge put on Kurt angle was a shoot sleeper. And what I mean by that is if you go back and you look at it, you look at the way that Edge applied it, he applied it as a real sleeper, not the working sleeper <laughs> you saw right. for so many years by people where they would, you know, cup the top of the head and it was basically a reverse chin lock that uh, had gone awry. Edge actually put it on like a real sleeper hole. So that part I liked especially, and we made sure that he, he did that properly. And then we had multiple clippers, electric clippers, because the battery clippers do not go through wet hair. Learn, learned our lesson many, many years ago that whenever you see clippers 
for a head shaving match, they better have better be electric clippers and have a long extension cord. Otherwise, you're screwed. But we had multiple clippers up there, and I think we went through two of them to get the majority of the hair out. And then, uh, yeah, gave Edge a straight edge razor. Get it? Straight edge? Mm-hmm. To do the uh, remaining head shaving. I thought it worked out good. I thought it was, you know, a good, typical, nice heel getting his head shaved, and Kurt played it off to perfection, even breaking the mirror, and maybe that's where his seven years of bad luck came. No? Too soon? Oh, my gosh. Can't Kurt, you you know, I, Kurt, I love you. When when somebody plays that shit for you, make sure they play this whole part where, Kurt, I love you. You know that. <laughs> Next up, uh, we've got the main event, Hulk Hogan's last title defense here in the WWE. I guess his first title defense in the WWE and his last, uh, he has been a staple of the company for so long. Uh, and this is his kind of hurrah run. Uh, and we're here. It's undertaker. It's Hulk Hogan. It's the main event. And the undertaker comes to the ring and I don't know, a pretty controversial situation. We're all used to the undertaker being the dead man, but here he's the American badass and he's got limp biscuit doing his theme song. How does the limp biscuit thing come about? <laughs> Briefly tell us about the decision to do the American badass. There's lots of rumor and innuendo out there that, uh, once upon a time, Kevin Nash has put it out there that undertaker almost came to WCW and eventually McMahon finally said, you can do whatever you want. I just need you to stay. And he said he wanted to do American badass, set the record straight. Did Taker almost go to WCW. Was he ever unhappy? Did Vince allow him to do the American badass to sort of pacify him? Whose idea was the character? Where was the input coming from? How the hell does the Lint biscuit stuff come together? Okay. God, so much to cover here. So much to cover. And for those of you who have already hit your Twitter machine saying, Conrad, it was not Hulk Hogan's first. You, you had to catch what Conrad said there. He said this was Hulk Hogan's first WWE title defense and his last. Because, see, we just got the F out. So that's what he meant. You there. didn't raise he, your eyebrows he, when he said it there. Huh? You didn't raise your eyebrows when he said it there. I'm sorry. We had just gotten the F out. And... uh so they see Conrad was being cute there and I, I was laughing just thinking of my Twitter blowing up with people correcting us saying it wasn't his first title defense. But anyway, um, where the hell was I? Uh, Undertaker, man, Undertaker had offers to go to WCW, but no, he was never close to going. He thought about it and, and weighed the options. I believe it was Undertaker's idea to do American badass. The original, uh, the original theme song, was actually Kid Rock. Uh, I am American Bad. You know, I am yeah. whatever American Badass and shit. And I thought that one worked great. Lip Biscuit. Then we at this point he wasn't necessarily the American Badass. He was going now to the Dead Man. It was a transition from really American Badass to Dead Man Inc. And that's where Undertaker was at this point. But he he liked the motorcycle character. That's probably. Closer to his real personality. What you mean? He's not. A you mean he's not a dead man in real life? He doesn't walk around brooding in slow motion everywhere. No, he is, and then he does. But 
it's uh, just a little bit easier to be a bike riding badass, kick ass, redhead, some bitch. I'm curious, what's the difference, at least from your perspective, between the American badass and Dead Man Inc.? Semantics. Seriously, uh, that's all it is. It's semantics. It's, it's a different, it's marketing, it's a different t-shirt. It's simply being able to have new shit to sell that sells Dead Man Inc. <laughs> so <laughs> Thank you, go, you. you go from being you go from being the American badass to the Dead Man. I was hoping that you were just going to say the t-shirt. Because that's, I mean, it's the same. Well, fuck yeah, man. Yeah, I'm not mad at it. I'm in. Dude, I've got, I still have Dead Man Inc. shit. Uh, the only thing that I have merchandise-wise, other than things that you can pick up at brucepritchard.com, which are great values, and I call everybody that buys stuff, um, is I have uh, a Stone Cold shirt, and I have a Dead Man Inc. shirt. That's uh, it. The Limp Biscuit situation. Catch me up. Limp Biscuit was looking to promote their new song. They they wrote it, and it was just an opportunity to kind of cross promote and work with Limp Biscuit. So that's all it was. It was simply a marketing marketing opportunity. But he's not coming out. It was over, uh, as crazy as it sounds. But he's not using that theme here. Uh, what did you think of his theme music here? And, and the t- at the time, uh, the hated uh, it. <laughs> Hated it. Uh, figure four. Fucking wh- hated it. Figure- Sorry, and I'm trying not to cuss as much, folks. I'm really trying. But I fucking hated it. Brian wrote, Undertaker came out to the worst theme song of his career. God, his Limp Biscuit song was the only thing he had going for him. And now he doesn't even have that anymore. God, this company is finished. By the way, the reasoning behind the new song was that the old song made people cheer for him. I wish I was making all of this up. Uh, chat me up. Why the switch to the theme music if the Limp Biscuit stuff was over? Well, it probably had run its course as far as rights. And so instead, how does this theme music? <laughs> how does Jim, Jim, give me a goddamn ripoff. Make it good. I want it to sound like a cross between the Limp Muffin and that 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 kid roll. Uh, you know, those two big stars. I think, yeah. Limp Muffin yeah. and Kid Roll. Who could forget? Yes. Good guy, that Limp Muffin. Chat me up about uh, Hulk Hogan here. Roll Tide. <laughs> I love when you do that. Whose idea was uh, doing this one last nostalgia run with Hogan as champion? Is this something that Hogan talks his way into a good position here and gets in Vince's ear? Uh, or is Vince all in favor of just going with what he knows and what's worked before? Well, you're going to shit all over this. Oh, yeah, right. It was Triple H. It was Triple H who, who said, wow, wouldn't it be neat to drop the title to Hulk Hogan? And it came on the day of the show that it was brought up. Hey, you know, what if, goddamn, man, Hogan's fucking red hot right now. What if, what if he beat me? And I was like, hmm, does he have, you know, one more? We can get it. You know, we don't have to leave it on him long. See, see how they react. And that was, that was it. It was simply a situation. It was one of those deals where something is suggested at a uh, production meeting and our life fucking gets turned upside down <laughs> in six hours and we got to rewrite everything. It that seems- was it. It was a short run. Let's try it. Hunter wanted to drop the title to him. 
And it bounced around a couple of times. You know, there was a, a title change at uh, WrestleMania 18 uh, when Triple H would beat Chris Jericho, and then a title change the very next month at Backlash, uh, which would have been in April. And now here we are in May, and there's another title change. I know that you're just going to say that belts are a prop and they don't really matter, but was there any thinking that, holy shit, we're flipping this thing around once a month right now? Yeah, and I hated that. I did hate that. That's why I wasn't in favor of dropping it to Hogan in the first place, because that was never in the plan. But it happened, and we had to deal with it. So get it off of him and, and try and settle down a little bit. Yeah, it would keep going too. You know, King of the Ring would be the exception the next month, but uh, The Rock would win the belt, you know, right after that at Vengeance. Uh, so it seems like there's lots of, you know, back and forth title changes, yeah. even up till SummerSlam when, and I can't wait to cover SummerSlam 02 with you at some point in the future, but Brock becomes the champ. So you've got the belt just hot potatoing, you know, Brock. Rock, um, Undertaker, Hulk Hogan, Triple H, Jericho, just month after month after month. Uh, it's an interesting time in the company. I think the argument can be made both ways, that it's good and bad. My point of view was, for the most part, most of the time, I didn't like the, the bell flip-flopping all the time. Uh, the Strizz app. Uh, our good friend leather uh, over at leatherbydan.com has told me before, and I think, uh, Dave Milliken has discussed this or it, there's all this wrestling belt, uh, fandom that exists. And there's been lots of talk about this undisputed belt that you guys had Joe Marshall make that the guys were wearing at the time. There's various versions here in various sizes, some larger than others. Uh, do you remember anybody specifically liking or hating this belt and this design? I liked it. Amongst the boys, uh, do you remember anybody having a strong opinion? Uh, there's a rumor out there that Hogan didn't like the way the belt uh, made his junk look. That's a real thing. Do you have any memories of no, the way? No, I, I have no idea about Hogan and his junk and how he Everybody else does, brother. No, I, I don't remember that one. Never heard that one. But uh, no, not that I can think of. Hey, uh, I don't know when we'll talk about it again. Did you ever watch that Hulk Hogan gawker porn where he, uh, he took, uh, he hulked up on Bubba Love Sponge wife. Yeah. You did watch it. I don't want to talk about Hulk Hogan's junk. Well, yeah. Why do we talk about guys junk? Well, we're, we're not, but someone we got Rick Rude's dong. We got, uh, hey, what else? Well, let's do another one. Kamala's penis was my favorite. Kamala's penis. Yeah. Uh, how about, no, I'm how skip. about, can we do one show without talking about somebody's uh, private parts? Maybe next week, this week though, let's try to get hashtag Hulk's thermos trending on Twitter. Now I never had a discussion with Hulk about how his dong looked. No, no, uh, we're not saying dong. We're not doing belt. that. We're saying thermos. I think there was a, a court document somewhere that described it as thermos-like, which I thought was the most hilarious way ever to describe a part of the human anatomy. You're fucking brutal. Uh, so no, no feedback about the belt. You liked it. Did everybody else love I it? I did like it. Well, I don't know. Um, I, I, again, I'm not that big of a, the, the belt nerd. I looked at it. If I liked it, I liked it. Uh, there was some, I didn't like it wasn't crazy about the intercontinental title, but this one I liked. Uh, any, any, uh, recollection of why the size was different. There was one that was fucking monstrous. 
And then others that maybe weren't so much. May have just been the size of the guy at the time. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember having multiple belts. Thanks for all the uh, insight here, Tony Shavon. No, I don't. I don't think that we had multiple belts. I think that it, you may it may have looked bigger on certain guys. Uh, what do you think of this match? I thought it looked like it was. Uh, <laughs> I remember being in the crowd and feeling like it was kind of sad uh, because I had grown up uh, with these two characters and specifically a little Hulkamaniac. And then when Hogan tries to slide in the ring and gets stuck and then winds up just being stuck on his belly there, um, the choke slam. Uh, well, you know, there's a spot, you know, we should talk about the choke slam. Hogan, I mean, Hogan is, is poised to take a choke slam from the undertaker and, and let me just, here's what Brian wrote. Undertaker went for the choke slam and time stood still. Hogan just stood there dead weight. Undertaker looked at him as if to say, well, are you going up or not? Hogan finally took the bump, but using the term bump as an insult to anyone who has ever taken one, it was pathetically, literally beyond description. And while I say this every week and it has become a cliche, this was the single worst bump I have ever seen in a major match. Totally took the wind out of the crowd sails. Hogan hulked up, hit the boot, leg drop of doom, and Undertaker kicked out. I'm trying to add some excitement here. Hogan, shocked, did the Hogan face. Taker hit a DDT. Hogan kicks out. Vince comes to ringside. Hogan punches him out and gives him a leg drop. This distracts the ref, allowing Undertaker to hit Hogan with a chair. Taker then hits a second choke slam, after which the first one looked like a Tiger Driver 91, and got the pin. At least the crowd liked it. After the match, Taker did the old chair to the throat angle for the Hulkster, who unfortunately isn't going anywhere for a while. Star in one quarter. Lots and lots and lots of tweets and questions and interaction about this chokeslam spot. Uh, were you in the back in Gorilla when this happens? What did you think of the match and that particular spot? Well, the... The bad one was the first choke slam. The checking, the second choke slam wasn't as bad. Of course not. But it was fucking awful. Um, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of chemistry here in the whole match. The whole match was as if, it, as if it was in slow motion, and both guys were not were not on their game. And you could tell, like you said, from the very beginning, coming down to the ring, it just didn't you know Hulk putting on the brakes or the brakes being put on Hulk sliding into the ring you kind of went oh shit I know where this match is going and it, it went downhill from there it just wasn't one of the better outings for either guy I think Hulk was beyond being able to work with somebody that wants to be physical like Taker like to do and you go to that first choke slam and it's like oh my god and I knew, you know, everybody knew at that point he was going to get another one. He ain't going out. Um, and the, the second one at least looked better than the first. That's what I can say about that. And I think everybody was happy when the match was finally over. Were you um, sitting with Vince when the choke slam happens? And what did that sound like? No, Vince probably warming up because he had to go out to the ring. So, I mean, he probably wasn't even there. He was probably in the back somewhere just warming up and I was 
best I can remember sitting at Gorilla with Jerry watching the match. What was, uh, was there any dialogue with Hulk or Taker or, you know, what were people saying to them when they came through the curtain after this? Taker was thankful it was over. Yeah. I think he just wanted to get the hell out of Dodge and just be done. He still had some heat at this point with Hogan. Is that fair to say? You know, they were over it. I mean, they're businessmen and they were over it. And he just, you know, was like glad that first of all, he was happy to work with Hulk because getting to work with Hulk, you're working with Hulk Hogan. And that that's an honor in and of itself. And, and something that I think anybody in the business would be happy to do. I know I always loved working with him. So that part of it, he was happy and Hulk's a draw and a big name, but he wasn't happy with the performance in the match overall because it wasn't a good match. And I think he was disappointed that, that he couldn't get that out of him from undertaker's spot and thankful that the damn thing was, was finished and done. And he could move on. I think Hulk was glad to get out of there alive and move on to the next thing. No matter what Hulk did, especially at this point in his career, the audience was going to forgive him. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in the crowd that night, and even though in hindsight it doesn't age well, yes, people weren't really tickled with the first choke slam, but people were still reacting to Hulk Hogan because we grew up with Hulk Hogan, and Hogan—he's Hulk Hogan. He's Hulk Hogan, so he can do no wrong. So we can be critical of, you know, his his performance a little bit here or there, but in the end, uh, he's still Hulk Hogan. Um, Let's take to uh, Twitter and answer some questions because we got lots of feedback about this. Uh, Justin Hanna wants to know, did anyone ever pitch the idea for Brother Love to manage Reverend Devon and Deacon Batista? Yeah, uh, Devon did. And, uh, and I produced a lot of that stuff with, with Devon. Heyman started, started out producing it, and then Devon asked if I would produce it and, and really wanted to do something with brother love. Devon was a big fan of brother love. And, and I was also a big fan of Devon and Devon's family has a ministry background. Do I correct. Have that right? Yes. Yes. Correct. Um, so he, he knew it and he, and he loved the cadence and I just, the, if anything, all I did with Devon was trying to help him with cadence. Now give us an example of cadence. Uh, I know what you mean, but, uh, kind of catch everybody up at home who may not be in the loop on what you mean. Of how and uh, when you accentuate uh, certain words. Yeah, all in the delivery. Yes. Um, why ultimately was the decision made not to involve Brother Love? Was Vince just kind of over it or you weren't wanting to do it? I wasn't wanting to do it, but also would have been kind of competing. Yeah, competing that's fair. With, with Devon. And I didn't want to take away from Devon. And that was Vince's main thing. He felt that. Um, these Vince's words that it would pale in comparison, pal. Um, and it would not be fair to Devon. I, I didn't think so, but it, I just didn't want to do it because I felt it would be conflicting. Danny Brown on Twitter wants to know what was the process for getting bikes for each show. By that time, I think we were carrying takers bike on the truck. Uh, so that was the bike that we had that that we carried from town to town on the 18 wheelers. Does he go out and buy his own bike? Does the company buy the bike and just give it to him at the end of the run for that one? I think we bought the bike and he eventually ended up with it. Yeah. Does we had for a while, Titan bikes out of Nashville, Tennessee, that yeah. built bikes for us that they gave them to us. Um, 
does does Vince just give Taker the bike when they're done, or do, does he pay for it? Do you do your call? Does who pay for it, Undertaker? Well, obviously Vince pays for it, but I'm asking, does the he Undertaker pay for it? Okay. What do you think I'm asking, dickhead? I don't know. Slow down. It's fucking. I'm texting and I'm technology challenged. Well, stop texting when you're fucking doing a podcast, jerk. Answer the question. I'm trying to listen. Oh my gosh. Catch me up. When the undertaker gets a bike from the company, does it come out of his check? Does he write a check for it? Is it a gift from Vince? Gift. Thank you. Um, Sammer wants to know on Twitter, uh, why didn't Hogan use the real American theme here instead of voodoo child? Who made that decision? He was Hollywood Hulk Hogan at the time, man. Didn't you see the beard? That was a Hulk. That was a Hulk deal when he when he would grow the beard. He <laughs> was Hollywood Hulk. So yeah, and the the shit that's on the uh, network now that was the worst rip off of Voodoo Child I've ever heard in my life. It wasn't even Voodoo Child on the network. Um, and it's Samur Abu Goosh. Gerald on Twitter wants to know. We all know that hindsight is twenty twenty. Does Bruce Pritchard regret allowing The Undertaker to do the American Badass gimmick, or was it worthwhile? I think it was worthwhile because it was an evolution and just a natural progression. I was much happier when we went back to the original Undertaker character, but it was a progression. At first, I hated it, but then it worked. Here's a question, if you want to play conspiracy theorists. Real Talk on Twitter wants to know, was The Undertaker always the plan, in the plan to win the title, even if Hogan never won it from Triple H the month prior at Backlash? What he's asking there is, I wonder if Triple H, he's not saying it like this, but this is what he implies. I wonder if Triple H asked to drop the belt to Hogan so he doesn't have to drop the belt to The Undertaker. Because Hogan is a nostalgia piece that people will forgive, and he'll be in and out. And it'll be looked upon differently as far as main guys on the main roster. If triple H loses to Hogan as compared to undertaker. Uh, no, I think the original plan always was to eventually get to, uh, there was Jericho and, uh, triple H at the time. That was always supposed to kind of be about the championship and what have you. And eventually get it to Rock at some point. But then once Rock got it, Rock wanted to drop the damn thing to uh, Brock. And all hell broke loose. But the... So this whole... I don't think Undertaker was ever in the plans. It was just simply a, okay, we've got Hogan now. Got to get it off Back with Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So Because Hunter was a baby face. So the question here, I guess, is... Uh, well, I mean, th- that really... Is, is, is a peek behind the curtain for people who are really trying to understand the way things happen and why things happen. Because really, process, if Triple H hadn't asked to drop the belt to Hogan, that Hogan doesn't have this last run here and The Undertaker doesn't have the belt here, uh, it all looks a whole hell of a lot different than it does. Yeah, um, and, and it doesn't just affect one brand because we were split at the time. It affected both brands. And it, it was It's it a was, lot. Fuck, it was brutal. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about it again. I, I'd like to talk about it uh, one day when, we, if and when we put it on a poll, and we're going to get to the poll in just a moment. But building up to this handicap match, we didn't discuss 
the Hardy Boys chair shots on Brock Lesnar. If you haven't seen this, I encourage you to go out of your way to see the April 8th, 2002 edition of Monday Night Raw. And there are two vicious, hard, any sort of uh, descriptive term you want to insert here for violence, uh, for chair shots delivered from the Hardy Boys to the skull of Brock Lesnar. Looking back, this does not age well. Of course, we didn't know what we know now back then. Was there any sort of heat or was the direction from the company, hey, he's a monster, so lay it the fuck in? Well, it was probably direction from Brock. Lay that shit in. Because he's crazy. Do you remember the chair shots I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was brutal. It was, I, I cringed watching it, just trying to think today. Oh, yeah, they were, they were nasty. That was probably at the request of Brock. And uh, we'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. You want to say it this time? No, I was going to wait for you to say it because you always do it. But this is what I need you to do. Do it like with eyebrows up this time. Like say with, with, with Bruce Pritchard. With Bruce Pritchard? How was that? Better. Dude, it's Cinco de Mayo. Maybe you should do it Mexican style. Con Conrad Thompson on Cinco de Mayo. Dave Silva must be proud or offended or both. CBN. Adios. Bruce Pritchard. God damn. What? Let's do the na 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 song. Na 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 na. Na 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. Goodbye. And we'll, and we'll start it. And they'll play it. And then they'll start singing na 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 na. Na na na. And then they just start chanting, and you sing it, and you get them going along with it. Na-na-na-na! Goodbye! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together... It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.